as I shared with you earlier, Christina and I just got back this week from a trip to Houston, Texas. And, you know, every year for the past, I forget now how many years, 13 years, something like that, Christina and I have always managed to make it to the GYC convention. And I'm so thankful for that. It's been such a huge, uh, huge blessing to us. It's always a time of spiritual encouragement and, and revival. And uh, this time, as we've done many times, we've had a chance to get together with friends and relatives, got to see my grandparents in Shreveport. So I'm very thankful for that. You know, I have to say that one of the most memorable GYC trips, I think, that Christina and I took was the one we did four years ago when we went to Phoenix. We actually drove down to the airport in Nashville in two separate cars. We had a whole load of young people with us and uh, rented a car, actually rented a large SUV there in Nashville and drove it across the country to Phoenix, Arizona. We allowed a little bit of extra time because we wanted to stop and see the Grand Canyon, which I've been to the Grand Canyon before, uh, Christina and I both have, but uh, there were a number of the young people with us that hadn't, and we all wanted to see it since we were going to be so close. How many of you have seen pictures of the Grand Canyon? Pictures of the Grand Canyon. Uh, you've all seen pictures of How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? A couple of you have been, been there. You saw pictures of the Grand Canyon before you went, right? Did the pictures give you any idea of how big the canyon was when you actually got there and saw it? You know, this is one of the things that I love about the Grand Canyon. If you haven't been there, you really have to go because it doesn't matter how many pictures you saw. In fact, I even saw an IMAX film on the Grand Canyon, and that was pretty impressive. But even the IMAX film didn't give you a real picture of how big the Grand Canyon is until you actually go there. And there's nothing like standing, and thankfully there's a railing in most places, but standing with your toes on the edge of a cliff and looking down, straight down past your toes, a mile, a mile straight down and seeing the trees like little, little ants down at the very, at the very bottom of the canyon and these huge, immense canyon walls or standing there in the sunset and watching as the sun sets and the, the shadows creep through the canyon and fill the canyon. And then just as it's setting, you can see the alpine glow along along the opposite rim. It's just incredible. It's like it's like a moving piece of artwork. It's God's artwork, God's handiwork. You know, I always wanted to hike down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. <laughs> I have never done it. Um, when I was a kid, we went to the Grand Canyon on one of our family vacations. And while we were there, we started hiking down and we would hike down these switchbacks a little ways we only had a little bit of water with us. And every little way, little bit, we would pass a sign and it says, don't go past this point unless you have a quart of water for every person in your group. And then a little bit further, it said, don't go past this point unless you have like a half gallon of water for every person in your group. Well, we didn't, so we, we turned around when we got to that sign. And, and when we turned around, I looked, and it, the canyon still looked just as deep from where I was as it did from the top rim. And then I turned around and looked back the other way. And we'd come a long ways down. And it felt twice as far going back up, as you can imagine. There's some things that you cannot imagine until you see them. You know, I think a lot of things in life are like that. I wonder, why are the roads at Christmas time always so crowded? 
people going to visit relatives and family and friends and all the, all the like. I mean, nowadays we've got telephones, we've got Skype, we've got FaceTime. I mean, I can talk on Skype all day long. I can, I mean, my grandma lives in, in Louisiana. That's over 700 miles away from here. Why don't I just call her on the phone and save all that gas and all that time? Well, there's something about being with someone in person that no matter if you have video chat, no matter if you have Skype or whatever, you can see them, you can talk to them, but you can't be with them. And I haven't yet figured out how to give my grandma a hug through the telephone. And it's worth every minute of all those hours in the car. And on the way back, we drove through solid rain. I think for the 12 hours we drove, we had 11 hours plus of rain, just rain, rain, rain. But it's worth every minute of it to be there and see her and visit with her and my grandpa in person. You know, at GYC, and I, I've told you about GYC, and it's always a blessing, a tremendous blessing to us. Uh, probably a lot of you have watched it on the internet or on 3ABN. How many of you have watched at least some of the GYC meetings? Okay. And it's wonderful that we can do that. You can get the messages, and it's a, a huge blessing to do that. But it's not the same as being there. Because yes, you can hear the message, but there's nothing like standing in the congregation of several thousand young people and singing together and hearing your voice blend with the thousands of other voices or kneeling in prayer in small groups. And as you're praying together in your small group, you can hear this tone, this hushed tone of thousands of groups of people praying right next to you and all around you. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it, I tell you. If you ever have the opportunity to go to a convention, it may not be GYC, but if you ever have an opportunity to go to a Christian gathering like this, take the opportunity because there's nothing like being there. No amount of seeing pictures of it, hearing about it, reading reports about it is going to substitute for being there. You know, 2,000 years ago, we read the story about wise men. Wise men who lived in the East. And they had read in this book, they had read in the prophecies about a coming Messiah who would come to the land of Judea and would be a redeemer and a blessing, not just to the people of Israel, but to the people of all lands. They read about him in the prophecies. And then they saw his star. And when they saw his star, it was not enough for them to know from the prophecies that he was coming. It was not enough for them to see his star. But when they saw it, they had to go and see him in person. But I'm not here today to talk about those wise men. It's not going to be a belated Christmas message, although I think that the birth of Jesus is something we can celebrate any day of the year, not just during the Christmas season. But that's not the title of my message today. In fact, the title of my message today is titled, The Second Wise Men. This is a different story, but I believe that its message is the same. It's the same message that we can find in the Christmas story. The Magi from the East came to find and worship the baby Jesus. They came to see him 
not to learn about him, but to see him in person. The second wise men also came, seeking Jesus, not as a babe, but as a king. And just as the first wise men were shocked to find the baby Jesus lying in a manger and living in such humble, humble circumstances, so the second would find that the Jesus they saw was unlike anyone they had ever imagined him to be. No, they did not come at Jesus' birth. They came during the last week of his earthly life. We find the story in John chapter 12. Just, just, just to give you the context, Jesus had recently raised Lazarus from the dead, and word had spread of his mighty works. He had attended the eventful feast at Simon's house, and his rapidly increasing popularity was arousing the, the jealousy of the Jewish leaders. He had entered Jerusalem in triumphal procession, with the children waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! A triumphal procession, like never before, riding on a young donkey. He had cleansed the temple of its profane merchants, and he had seated himself in its courts, teaching and healing. Then they came, the wise men. But what they saw and what they heard was unlike any picture they had ever seen or imagined that Jesus would be like. John chapter 12, verses 20 through 22. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Now these men, it says that they were Greeks. These were not Jewish people. These were, just like the wise men, people of foreign descent. Now they were not from the east, like the wise men who came at Jesus' birth. They were probably more likely from the west. But they were Greeks, and they had come up to worship with the Jews at the Passover feast. Undoubtedly, they had learned from the Jewish people about the true God and had become worshipers themselves of the true God. No doubt these were some of a great number of Gentiles who had been influenced by the Jews who had been dispersed throughout the world during the captivity hundreds of years before. These men no doubt had heard of Jesus. He was well known in Judea, and his fame had spread abroad. They had heard of his wonderful works. They had heard of his peculiar teachings. And now, since they were in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, they wanted to see him for themselves. All these things they had heard had helped them to formulate some picture in their minds. But it wasn't a clear picture, and they wanted to know, who is this Jesus? Sir, we would see Jesus. In a sense, you could say that these men were led to Jesus by his church. 
by the Jewish nation themselves. Yes, these were the same Jewish leaders who were plotting to kill Jesus. And yet it was the Jews who brought these Greeks to Jesus. You know, I wonder, in an age when we're so quick to criticize God's church, in an age when, when even the smallest error can't be passed over without making an issue out of it, I wonder if we can't learn a lesson from this right here. That although clearly the Jewish leaders were fast rejecting every one of Jesus' messages, that even so, God was using the Jewish nation to bring these Greeks to Jesus. You know, even the wise men who came at Jesus' birth, they came from Babylon, the land of Babylon. They came to Jerusalem. And although the Jewish leaders had wanted to have nothing to do with Jesus, when they were questioned, they gave the answer. Where is the Messiah going to be born? In Bethlehem. They sent them the right direction. God used them in spite of themselves. And sometimes I think God can use us in spite of ourselves to reach other people for him. But you see, there was another thing that stood in the way for these Greeks in order to see Jesus. You see, they weren't descendants of Abraham. And Jesus was teaching in the temple, in the inner court of the temple. And as they came up to the temple, if you can imagine yourself walking up to the temple, there was an outer court, and then there was another court. There was a, like a low wall that separated these, these courtyards from each other. And on this wall, on this inner court, was a sign that said, Jews only beyond this point. And since they were not Jews, they stopped at that line. And Jesus was over there. They couldn't get to him. They couldn't see him. And so they asked his disciples, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And now Jesus' own disciples get to play a role in this story. The Jewish nation have, have brought these Greeks this far, but they can't go any further. So Jesus' disciples get to play a role. And Philip came. They asked Philip, and Philip came and told Andrew. You know, it's so interesting in the stories of the Bible, you don't hear a whole lot about Philip. But it seems like at least during the time of uh, before the book of Acts, every time you hear about Philip, whenever he has a job to do, he goes and gets someone else. He hears about Jesus and he goes and calls Nathaniel. Come and, and learn about the Messiah. He's, he's always going. He's always evangelizing. He's always telling the good news. Hey, we found the Messiah. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And he says, come and see. See for yourself. I'm not going to argue with you. Just come and see for yourself. And now these men want to see Jesus. And Philip doesn't stand there and try to tell them about Jesus. He goes and tells Andrew, and then he gets Jesus and makes the meeting happen. You know, I think there's a lesson in that for us, too, because we talk so much about sharing the gospel, about telling others about Jesus. And we should. We should tell others about Jesus. We should spread the gospel. But I think it's so important 
more than telling others about Jesus, that we bring them to him. Because it's not until each and every one of us has a personal encounter with Jesus, a personal relationship with him, that our lives and our hearts can be changed. I can tell you about Jesus all day long, but until you actually meet him, your life cannot be changed. And if Philip knew this, and he goes and gets Jesus, and he brings these Greeks to a place where they can meet Jesus, where they can see him in person, we would see Jesus. So my next question is this. Who did these wise men see in Jesus? Jesus hears the message. He comes out of the temple. He meets with them. You know, they've, they've got all these ideas in their minds about who this Messiah is. Who is he? Is he going to be a king? Is he get about to proclaim himself as the ruler of, of Israel and overthrow the Romans? Who is he? And he comes out to meet them. He's not dressed like a priest. He's not dressed like a king. He's dressed like an itinerant rabbi, like a peasant, like anybody else. In fact, only a few days later, when the, when the Jewish leaders are, are trying to arrest Jesus, they're so unsure, even when they're told where he's going to be hiding out, they're not sure how they're going to tell him apart from all the rest of the crowd in the dark. And they have to get a sign from Judas the one that I kissed, that's going to be the one. Because he wasn't so much different than anybody else that you could pick him out of a crowd. So he comes out to meet them. And though they only see the humble garb of a peasant, yet in his eyes they recognize the dignity of a king. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2 and 3. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus begins to speak in John chapter 12, verse 23. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. What is this he's saying? Being glorified and death all in the same sentence? What, what, what could he be talking about? What could he mean? Jesus continues in verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. It's a simple prayer. He begins with a prayer like any of us might pray. Father, save me from this hour. But though he speaks the words, he does not pray this prayer. He asks it as a question. Shall I pray, Father, save me from this hour? When Peter prayed those words as he was slipping beneath the waves, Jesus instantly grabbed his hand and saved him. Jesus knew that his heavenly father was just as eager to save him, to rescue him from this trial that was coming upon him. And yet he does not pray this prayer. But, Jesus says, for this purpose I came to this hour. 
he refuses to pray the prayer, but instead he prays another prayer. Father, glorify your name. Instantly, a voice thunders from heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The disciples, the visitors, the crowd is transfixed, stunned by this thunderous voice. Clearly, Jesus is not an imposter. The voice of God himself has responded in answer to Jesus' humble prayer. Jesus continues in verse 30. This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Imagine, put yourself in the place of these Greek visitors to Jesus. All that you have heard, all that you have pictured, all that you've imagined about Jesus could not prepare you for this kind of encounter. What is he saying? Here he has undeniable evidence that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. God himself is speaking to him in an audible voice. And yet he says, I will be lifted up. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. What does he mean about being lifted up? Well, these are the same words that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. How did Moses lift up the serpent in the wilderness? On a pole, on a cross. And the meaning is not lost to Jesus' followers. To Jesus' listeners, they know he's talking about a cross. But how can he be speaking of death on a cross when he is the Messiah? He's not dying for himself. That fact is clear. If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. These men had come asking, Sir, we wish to see Jesus, and now they saw not just a man, but the Son of Man, the Son of God, glorified by God. And they saw him now, as it were, prepared to hang on a cross. Only a few days later, they would see him in actuality, at this same feast, raised up, lifted up, on a cross. Nails piercing his hands and feet. A spear thrust in his side. His blood shed, not for himself, but for you and for me. For everyone in this world. In the words of Isaiah chapter 53, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Jesus came as the bearer of our sins, to be raised up, to be lifted up on a cross. And until you see him hanging on the cross, 
you have not seen Jesus. These men came, perhaps expecting to see a prophet, perhaps expecting to see a great teacher, to hear great words of wisdom. But they saw more than this. They saw a man. They saw the Son of God. Forget. But I have another question for you. What were these wise men called to become through Jesus? They they saw Jesus. But now what were they called to become through him? These second wise men, they were led to Jesus. They saw him and they recognized him not only as a prophet, but as the Messiah and as the Savior. But Jesus had said more. And I skipped over these verses a moment ago. John chapter 12 and verses 24 through 26. Jesus had said, the hour has come, the Son of Man should be glorified. Verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, but if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. A parable, yes, an illustration, like Jesus was so known, so well known for teaching. But in the context, the meaning is clear. A grain of wheat. You know that if you take wheat berries and store them in a dry place, they will keep for a very, very long time. In fact, the scientists have, have dug into the ancient pyramids of Egypt and found there in the, in the recesses, in the cavities in these pyramids, in these, these burial chambers, they found caches of wheat from thousands and thousands of years ago still there, still viable, still good. But it hadn't grown. It had been dry and dormant. But the moment you take a piece of wheat and drop it into the ground and bury it, it's gone. It, it's no longer grain that we can use. It gets wet. It gets moist. It gets spoiled. It gets rotten. Just like a body that's buried. And yet, unlike a physical body, that wheat has a germ of life within it that springs up. And not only does it grow and produce one wheat berry, but it produces a bountiful harvest. And we see this happening year after year after year. If you drive by a wheat field or a corn field or a soybean field, you will see every single year the farmer goes out with his tractor and he drops tons of seed into these fields. But with the hope 
of reaping a bountiful harvest. Unless it falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Jesus, only a few days from now, would be hanging on a cross and from there would be buried in a cold tomb. He did not die for himself. He died for us. And through his death, his death has produced a bountiful harvest. In allowing you and me, in allowing his followers throughout all ages, once again, to be reunited with God, to bear much fruit. But Jesus goes on, and from the context of this verse, it's clear that he's not just speaking of his own death. He is alluding to that, yes. But he's talking about us. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Follow him where? Follow him as he walks around teaching and working miracles? Sounds pretty good. But where was he going here? His ministry was done. He was going to the cross. You know, sometimes I wish Jesus wouldn't have been quite so hard on people when he first met them. I mean, he could have been so much more popular if he hadn't kept saying things like this. He, you know, when a rich young ruler came and, and, and spoke to him, he could have said, hey, you know, you're going to be a great asset. You just come along and hang out with us for a few days and see how you like it. He didn't say anything. He says, go and sell everything you have and come and follow me. Is that how you win friends and influence people? <laughs> Another disciple wanted to follow him and he simply said, let me go bury my father first. Jesus replied, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. And in Matthew 10, verses 37 through 38, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. My friends, yeah, sometimes I wish that Jesus' teaching wasn't quite so hard. I think Christianity would be a whole lot more popular, don't you think? It didn't entail this kind of thing. But I think that's just the point. With Jesus, it's all or nothing. You can't be a Christian one day a week. You can't serve Jesus part-time. You can't say, hmm, let's see what it's like. I'll give it a try. It's all or nothing. And in times like these, I might add it's now or never. You see, trying to live the Christian life without taking up the cross of Christ is like trying to envision the Grand Canyon from postcard. Jesus says, follow me. 
take up your cross. It's a call to death. A call for our entire surrender. No matter what it may take. It was May 24, 1869. John Wesley Powell set out from the Green River in Wyoming. He and nine other men with four boats, they were on an expedition to explore the Colorado River and the Grand Canyon. Three months later, he and five of his men would become the first, besides Native Americans, to run the Colorado River through the length of the Grand Canyon. Notice I said five of his men. One of his men abandoned the expedition after about a month. But three men, three of those men who had continued with him until two days before their intended landing, finally decided it was too much. We can't brave this river any longer. We'd rather hike out of this canyon than go down these deadly rapids. That was the last time they were seen. Historians don't know what happened to them, but many feel that they may have been killed by Indians on their way hiking out of the Grand Canyon. You know, explorers of every age have taken risks. You know, it's a fact that nothing great has ever been achieved in this world without taking a risk. And just like pushing off down the rapids of the Colorado River, in the Christian life, it's not just a risk, it's a commitment. It's pushing off past the point of no return, saying, Jesus, I'm yours. To be crucified with Christ and to live the rest of our lives as though we were already dead. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And he says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 6, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. In verse 11 in Romans 6, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. My friends, as we begin the year of 2019, I want to ask you, what is your picture of Jesus? Have you, like the wise men of old, been led to Jesus? Have you seen a picture, not only about him, but have you encountered his face? Have you encountered his life? And have you allowed that encounter to transform you? Have you made a commitment this year? This year in 2019, it's all or nothing for Jesus. The wise men came, these second wise men came and asked Philip, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And they saw him. They saw Jesus committed to death. 
They heard his call to commitment, but as it were also to a new life through him. Just like a kernel of wheat planted in the ground, it dies of itself, but it lives and produces fruit. So Jesus' love, planted in our hearts, crucifies ourself, and yet it abounds to newness of life. My friends, I want to ask you today, would you see Jesus when others offer you an easy road? Would you see Jesus when it seems difficult and unpopular, even awkward? Would you see Jesus when all the lights and glamour of this world are crying for your attention? Would you rather see Jesus when all you see before you is a cross, my friend? Would you rather see Jesus? Jesus, in 2019, this year, we would invite him into our hearts and into our lives, that we may be completely sold out for you, that nothing else may distract our attention, but that we may come one year closer 
to your soon return. This is our prayer, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.